thank you all for being here today. Uh, I am the events manager. My name is Riley. Uh, we, uh, so I'm grateful to have you guys all here today. Uh, this past year has been great as we've been able to start doing events again after last year we weren't able to do events because so, um, I'm always really excited when we have like a large turnout because it just feels like old times. So I am going to introduce the editor of University of Minnesota Press and he will introduce our readers today. So Eric Anderson, if you could take the stage. Yo, thank you. First of all, everyone who's here, thank you, everyone who's there online. Uh, thank you, the next chapter feels really good uh, to gather together safely um, in this time. And, and we're so grateful that even more people can join. I'm gonna be very brief because I'm not the one you wanna be hearing from tonight, but I do wanna just kind of lift up on behalf of the press, our gratitude and um, just joy at being able to work with Carolyn and David and all of these contributors on this incredible book. Um, you know, we've been oppressed for 95 years, I believe it is. I haven't been there for all of them, so I'm going <laughs> on faith there. Um, I like to think that we take our work seriously, and I know that as an editor, I feel incredible gratitude pretty much every day because of the people that I get to work with and because of the things that I learn, the things that I better about myself through the act of working with people like Carolyn, like David, like the contributors to this collection. Um, and so just on behalf of all of us at the press, you know, thank you for uh, the opportunity to help lift this into the world. And I won't talk a lot about the book because I want you to hear that from Carolyn and David, um, but it's meant a lot to me um, to work on this book. And so I, I just thank you both for that to start. I get to introduce Carolyn, and then Carolyn and David will introduce um, other writers as we go. But, but it's my honor to get to introduce Carolyn right now. Carolyn is founder and director of More Than a Single Story. She's a writer, educator, and an advocate for the healing power of the arts. Her essay collection, Tell Me Your Names and I Will Testify, received a Minnesota Book Award for memoir and creative nonfiction. She is co-author with Dr. Josie Johnson of her memoir, Hope and Struggle, and her essays have been published widely in A Good Time for the Truth, Race in Minnesota, and Blues Vision, African-American Writing in Minnesota, as well as many other publications. She was the first person of color to win the Kay Sexton Award. That's the part on script, off script. I will say I've gotten to work with Carolyn for many years now. Um, we began working together on Josie Johnson's book. She made me see so much. I felt like certainly I'm, the, you know, how many other people has she done this for? And the more that I worked with her, I realized you could fill an arena with the people that have been inspired and encouraged. She is incredibly generous with her time, with her spirit, with her wisdom. As an editor, sometimes you hope that you can be there for your authors as much as possible. The wonderful thing is when you learn you have authors that are there for you as well. I have certainly leaned on Carolyn at times both uh, professionally and personally. And I am really grateful to introduce and bring up Carolyn Holbrook. Oh, goodness. Eric, thank you so much. So I want to thank the University of Minnesota Press and a special thanks to our wonderful editor who we just met, Eric Anderson. I also want to say thank you to the 33 writers who lent their voices to this effort. 
my deepest gratitude to my friend and colleague, David Mora, for co-editing this volume with me. I couldn't be prouder that more than a single story now stands among the many, thank you, who have raised a voice to speak about this fraught moment in American and Minnesota history. Many of you know that I started more than a single story in 2015. We are a conversation series where Black, Indigenous people and writers and arts activists discuss issues of importance to us. About two years ago, I mentioned to Eric Anderson that I've been thinking of putting together an anthology. And as you can see, his response was and always is enthusiastic. <laughs> He's just an awesomest editor. I invited David Mira into more than a single story early in our history to develop and moderate conversations centering around experiences of BIPOC men. I'm honored that he also agreed to work with me as co-editor of We Are Meant to Rise. The original idea for the anthology was to invite writers who have participated in the first five years of more than a single story. But the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd changed all that. In the actual publication, we experienced the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd and the aftermath from the point of view of some who, have, who are grappling with those life-shattering events. But the book also contains essays and poems about loss, family, food culture, economic security, mental health, and other issues. The voices in our book reflect the variety of BIPOC writers in Minnesota, from authors with international reputations to newly emerging voices, and voices from many cultures, including Indigenous, Dakota, and Ojibwe, African-American, Hmong, Somali, Afghani, Lebanese, Korean, Vietnamese, Japanese, Puerto Rican, Colombian, Mexican, transracial adoptees, mixed race, LGBTQ+, and people with disabilities. And we dedicated the book to the memories of George Floyd, Philando Castile, Jamar Clark, Dalal Eid, Brandon Leducer, Fong Lee, Dante Wright, and all others who lost their lives or lost loved ones to police violence. We have a special dedication to that in our pleasure. We now want to courageously videotape every second of George Floyd's murder. At this point, I'd like to name the writers represented in the book. Some are here tonight in person, others are attending online, and some just weren't able to make it. But if you're here, please stand when I call your name. Suleiman Agand. Pamela Fletcher Bush, Mary Moore Easter, Louise Erdrich, Annika Fajardo, Safi Holland, Farah, Sherry Fernandez Williams, Shannon Gibney, Catherine Haddad, Tish Jones, Ezekiel Jobert III, Douglas Kearney, Ed Bach Lee, Ricardo Levins Morales, Arlita Little, Resma Menicum, Tess Montgomery, Ahmad Kais Munhazim, Melissa Olson, Alex Pate, Bao Fee, Mona Susan Power, Marcy Rendon, Samantha Sensorvera, Saeed Shahi, Aaron Sharkey, Sun Young Shin, Michael Torres, Diane Wilson, Kalkalia Yang, and Kevin Yang. Now I'd like to turn it over to my co-editor, David Murrah. He is the author of A Stranger's Journey, Race, Identity, and Narrative Craft and Writing, as well as two memoirs, Turning Japanese, Memoirs of, of a Sensei, which won the Oakland Penn Josephine Miles Book Award and was a New York Times notable book, and Where the Body Meets Memory. 
um, his documentary on PBS. Um, Armed with Language. Armed with Language, just won an Emmy Award. Um, David is going to speak. And then the four writers that are also on this program with us are going to read. And we will introduce each one of them, Kyle Kalea Yang, Douglas Kearney, Melissa Olson, and Saeed Shai. And then we'll move chairs up to the front and we'll have sort of a panel um, with each of us asking a question to the authors. Um, and then we'll have audience Q&A and then um, we'll have refreshments and book signing. So David. I want to thank Carolyn, first of all, for inviting me to be a part of and then to help her with a more than a single story series, uh, which sort of serves as the basis and how this whole anthology started. And then Carolyn asked me to become a co-editor of the book, which I'm so, so pleased and honored. And Carolyn has been such a pillar of the local writing community for so many years. She mentored and helped so many other writers. She started Sassy, The Right Place, which was a gift to the community, giving classes and grants and programs, you know, and, uh, for, for many BIPOC writers. And last year she published her wonderful collection of essays with the University of Minnesota Press, Tell Me Your Names and I Will Testify, which won last year's Minnesota Book Award. Such a great thing watching some of these writers emerge. You know, some of them came up, some of them like Alex Bay came up with us and some of them are much younger and it's been wonderful to see a whole new generation of writers taking hold as part of uh, Minnesota. I, I was just flashing on the fact that, you know, Robert Bly died over the weekend and there were many tributes to him. And the first reading I attended in Minnesota was at the firehouse with Robert Bly and a number of others. And it was a terrific reading but I think I was the only writer of color there. So I've seen this community really change. I want to thank my wife, Susan Sensor, for all the support she's given me all these years. Um, I infamously, when I won the <laughs> Kay Sexton Book Award, did not mention her. <laughs> my ever, you know, and, and so I want to apologize again for that. <laughs> I really want to thank her in public so everything Sam has an essay in this book too, so it, it's great. And we just had a new addition to our family, our, our grandson Tadashi, who uh, is three months old. So it's a great time. Finally, I want to thank all the wonderful, just eloquent, powerful, incisive, brave, honest writers who are part of this anthology. It's such a powerful anthology. It covers so many different aspects of what it's like to be a BIPOC writer and in, in Minnesota, what our communities have gone through over these past couple of years, uh, which has been as difficult and strange and troubling as any years in our history, particularly 2020, which is when a lot of these essays were written. Uh, I've known so many of the writers in this community, uh, but I particularly want to thank Four of them who've been my good friends and really colleagues over the year, Alex Pate, Bafi, Ed Bakli, and Sunil Shin. I'm going to read just a couple paragraphs from my introduction. Here's the first paragraph. For readers, this anthology of Minnesota writers of color and indigenous writers will serve as many things. A presentation of the growing diversity of Minnesota and of the many voices great within us. A series of lenses on the American experience 
a bouquet of wordsmiths and thinkers, memoirists and novelists, poets and activists, a panoply of witnesses of the year 2020, one of the strangest and most unsettling in our history. Inspired by more than a single story series of panel discussions, this anthology is an exploration of what so many people of color and indigenous communities have experienced in their own lives. It's also an encouragement for each of us, no matter our race or ethnicity, to speak out, to tell our own stories, to own our own powers. In such a time, the stories of people of color and indigenous people, the reactions to the state of the nation not only provide valued witnesses to our present, but also speak to our future. So often in our daily lives, especially outside our own communities, we BIPOC people may hold back from speaking what we are truly thinking and feeling. Here, these writers are giving you the full unvarnished truths. Many write profoundly and prophetically about the quest for racial quality. At the same time, the writers in the anthology are singular individuals and talents. Each is telling their own unique story with their own unique voice about their unique experiences in ways that challenge and enrich us. Um, Douglas is going to talk about his essay tonight, which I quote in the introduction. So I just want to mention there was an article, after, uh, a letter in the Star Tribune after the George Floyd murder during the protests. And in it, um, this Northside Minneapolis school teacher talked about her experience with her fifth grade class, where she asked her class, what is your image? What, what do you think America is? And here's what she wrote. Nearly 100% of my class wrote about their fear of the police and police brutality. These are, in seventh grade words, they expressed unjust behaviors by authorities towards them. They are 12 and 13 years old. They do not need this weight on their shoulders right now. Their goal should be learning and being a kid. I sat down at my desk and sobbed, thinking of what my students go through on a daily basis while they're walking, playing, and talking about Black. She's seventh graders. Right now, we're in this controversy, stupid ass, where <laughs> stupid ass controversy about critical race theory in the 1692 project, which is really like, can you tell the truth about American history? And, you know, I, I was remarking to Eric, some of this is like the abuser psychology because it says, the problem isn't what we did to you. It said you keep remembering what we did. <laughs> and you keep talking about it. And that's the problem. And by your talking about it, you are victimizing us, which is absolutely insane and ridiculous. Still, the question remains, out of so many different voices, out of such diversity, how do we form a common vision? How do we come together to create a society that is truly democratic and truly just, that provides a space and opportunity for all of us to thrive? From America's inception, the confrontation between white settlers and Native Americans, between white slave owners and their black slaves, have engendered questions of identity, of who we are as a nation. 
And now for many, each day in America, and I'm quoting, I quote before this a passage by James Baldwin, which I won't quote here. A stranger walks into our village, or we are a stranger walking into someone else's village. The appearance of the stranger, Baldwin maintains, challenges our own way of looking at our village. But at the same time, the stranger also looks at us differently than the way we look at ourselves. And thus, we must question our own identity in ways we have not before. And that has been America's society, strangers encountering strangers. Again, this can be a terrifying proposition. It certainly was for the indigenous people who resided in America when confronted with colonizers who took, took their land and wanted to exterminate them. But our present day encounters with our fellow Americans can involve a very different process. We can look at each stranger as a fellow human being, a fellow traveler, a fellow American. We can choose to learn from the stranger, learn a different language, a different culture, a different history. And we can comfort ourselves by the fact that this process has always been occurring in America. In so many cases, such encounters and the exchanges they have catalyzed have only made us stronger more resilient, more creative and innovative, more capable of making connections with the rest of the world outside of America. That is, if we let the stranger into our village, into our nation, and indeed into our hearts. Several years ago, I was asked by the Nation's Magazine to write on Minnesota for an anthology of writers commenting on their own states. Back in the 1920s, the magazine The Nation did a similar anthology, and Sinclair Lewis, the Nobel Prize winning novelist from Salk Center, wrote about Minnesota. In his essay, Lewis commented on, quote unquote, the strange new immigrants, the Swedes. Native Americans and the enslaved Africans have been central to the American story from its beginning. But we have always been a country of immigrants, whether they were my Japanese grandparents or the Swedes and other Scandinavians who settled in Minnesota, or the Somali, Mexican, Vietnamese, Hmong, Lebanese, South Asian, Liberian, and other immigrants who have come and settled here. I know this word is out of style, but I believe in it as a description. Diversity is who we are, diversity is our strength. Each new speaker who becomes part of America is our strength. The writers in this anthology provide us with individualized portraits of who we are. And in doing so, they can help us to know each other, our neighbors, our fellow citizens. These writers prove we are indeed more than a single story. Thank you. Our first reader is Kalkalia Yang. She is a Hmong American writer for both children and adults. Her books have been recognized by the National Endowment for the Arts, the Dayton's Literary Peace Prize, the Chautauqua Institute, the National Book Critics Circle Award, and with four Minnesota Book Awards, she is the Edelstein Keller Writer in Residence in the Creative Writing Program at the University of Minnesota. Her books include The Late Homecomer, a Hmong Family Memoir, The Song Poet, the Shared Room, and Yang Warriors. Thank you, Carolyn, for that lovely introduction. David, Carolyn, thank you for bringing us together. Eric, Heather, the University of Minnesota Press, 
Thank you for giving cause for this book to be in the world and for bringing it forth. Readers, writers, it is an honor to be among you in this place that so many of us love. I've been thinking a lot about space. I was born a stateless child in a refugee camp. I've known Minnesota since I was six. The space where George Floyd was murdered was actually the site of where I fell in love with a white man. It is a site of murders I know past, present, and future. How can this be? That is one of the big questions, I think, for me. And so in this book, I got to test also my theories about place. I'm from the east side of St. Paul. The east side of St. Paul is one of the most diverse and one of the most impoverished parts of our city. It's home to many new refugees. And I will read about three instances of um, break-ins. The first one. As was usual on those long ago summer nights in the falling down neighborhood, our African-American neighbors ended and began each week with a gathering on their back porch. The men and women drank beer and barbecued on an old circular grill with rusted legs. They listened to music and sometimes danced. Mostly though, they talked. Through the thin windows on the walls, we bathed in the smoky descent of sizzling meats and the stories they told, cut through with laughter, sometimes tears. In the moments with the talk low, we paid attention to the music, loud beats that created a pulse in our walls and the air we breathed and slept in. These evening parties by our neighbors had become the backdrop of our lives. One night though, things took a turn when one of their friends wanted to get into our house through a bedroom window. The younger children were asleep between us. Stowe and I were not yet asleep. We were dreaming into the future, quietly putting into words a fishing trip where we might actually stay in a cabin or a tent, something we'd only ever seen on television. We heard the pounding at the same time, someone punching at the window of the middle bedroom. We both sat up, Dog got to her feet quickly. Without turning on the light, she walked toward the kitchen. I followed her. She fumbled in the knives drawer and came out with a sharp long knife, its fine tip gleaming in the room of the kitchen. I was scared of the sharp knives. So I grabbed a much smaller preparing knife, the one I knew how to handle well, out of the peels of apples and peaches, don't let the way toward the middle bedroom. Suddenly, it seemed like the clock ticking on our walls had a life of its own. Its steady tick was no more. In its place was a new tick far louder and faster than any we'd heard before. Doug quietly opened the door to the middle bedroom. The room was bathed in moonlight. The sheer blue curtain with a single big window and the room did little to hold back the night. We saw the shape of a person pressed tight to the window. We heard the screen outside the window fall. We separated, each moving with the wall shadows until we ended up on either side of the window. We could hear the loud breathing of the person on the other side of the pane of glass. Someone was with him. Don't do this, it's just kids inside. You're going to scare them. We recognized the voice of the older woman from the top of the duplex next door. We didn't talk with her, but we waved to her whenever we saw her outside. She always waved back. Her voice said, come on, you're drunk. Let me help you. The man's words were labored and rough. He said, you can't help me. Nobody can. His words broke. They turned into a wail. We've seen grown men cry before, tears falling from faces, Voices shaking with emotion, but we'd never heard a man 
wail before outside of a low funeral house. Cries come from deep in the hollow of a belly, rumbling through the heart. He cried out the words, nobody's gonna help me. It seemed he hugged our window tight for a moment and then slowly slid down. Our neighbor said, shh, shh, shh. She said calmly again and again, everything's going to be all right. Doe and I stood there beside that long thin window holding our knives and our breath until the woman helped the man up and they left our house alone. The second break-in. A white man tried to break into our house a few weeks after the experience with the white woman. We were still pretty shaken up, praying to our ancestors for police not to show up one day at our house looking for the caprice in its law-breaking content, among children. It was now near autumn, the American elm in our front yard, always the first tree in the neighborhood to drop its leaves, was already mostly bare. Crispy leaves covered up the grass, still green from summer. The curtains of the wide front windows were pulled to one side to invite the evening light and the picture of my favorite season into the house. I was in the kitchen cooking up a simple dinner, beef, polska, kielbasa, sausages, fried with tomatoes and onions. Dad was bathing the two older kids in the bathroom. Mom and dad were at work. The baby was asleep. Three-year-old Shell was at the front window. She shall saw a person with a ponytail peek into the, our house. The person pointed to the door, a gesture for her to open it. Shell thought that the person was our auntie who, who also wore her hair in a ponytail. Shell walked to the front door, reached for the lock, and turned it. I heard Shell scream of fear. I ran to her. There was an arm inside our door. It was trying to break this chain on top. I screamed for Doug. I slammed into the door with my body. The hand did not back out. He pushed, I moved. I knew I was too weak. I braced my feet against the wall in front of me and I pushed my back into the wooden door. I thought I was going to crack my legs into each time the door lurched behind my back and my knees went high in the air. Doug and the kids from the bathroom naked and wet ran out and assembled in a mess against the door. We were all trying to stay away from this breach. We were all pushing against the old wooden door. Each time we managed to hit the door against his arm, the man outside our door seemed to grow stronger. Little Shell stood away and cried, her hands to her mouth. In the end, it was Sue, our seven-year-old brother, who had the wherewithal to run to the kitchen and grab a bread knife. Now he used the tip of the knife to stab into the man's hands again and again and again until she forced it outside. When the door slammed into place, I was able to lock it. My hands were shaking against my beating heart. The man outside her door swore and swore and said, I'll be back for all of you. We heard the sound of a motorcycle roar to life. We watched him go away, long hair in a ponytail. The final break-in. It was 2003 and I was a senior in college when the house was broken into again. Our grandmother had died at Uncle Ung's house. Following the tradition of our people, we went over to spend nights warming up their house with the sounds of our lives. We were not home the night of the break-in. The persons who broke into the house came through the back where mom's garden was. They stepped on her tomato and her chili plants our Thai basil, and through the mint patch. They broke into a window near the back and entered the house through the kitchen. 
The thieves took everything of value, our television, our traditional mom's clothes, the precious life savings of the younger children, coins and fruit jelly containers from the Asian stores, the family's single computer. They left behind a weapon, a leg of a table with a long nail sticking out of one end. We called the cops when we came home and found the house, all a mess. Two cops arrived, and after a walkthrough told us that there was nothing they could do. A few days later, Doe forgot her keys and knocked on our Latino neighbor's doors. They lived in the downstairs duplex. She asked if she could use their phone. They said yes. Inside, she saw our television and our computer and the kids' empty savings container. The two boys, friends of our younger siblings, were shy and embarrassed, but their father, but their father acted normal, so Doe did too. A few months after the break-in, after 10 years in America, our family moved away from the east side of St. Paul, and life was never the same again. By then, Doe and I were mostly made. We had learned how to get along with each other, and the communities we lived in we would take that with us, no matter where we went in the unraveling future. Thank you, Doug. Uh, Doug, here? Yeah, okay. Douglas Kearney has published seven collections of poetry, including Show, which was recently nominated for a National Book Award. Buckstein's winner of the Theodore Rothke Memorial Poetry Award and the Firecracker Award for Poetry from the Community of Literary Magazines and Presses, and a California Book Award Silver Medalist in Poetry. He's written a collection of libretti, uh, Someone Took Their Tongues, His Mess, and His Mess, His Mess, and Mess Anne uh, was a small press distribution handbag selection. His operas include Suction, Wardrake, Crescent City, Sweetland, and Comet Popia, commissioned by the American Modern Opera Company. He received the Whiting Writers Award, which is a really big award, a foundation for the, from the Contemporary Arts Cy Tombley Award for Poetry. He teaches creative writing at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities and lives in St. Paul and his family. And I know he functions as a valued resource for writers of color who pass through the MFA program here, uh, including one of them who's reading tonight. So anyway, Doug Carney, who has uh, been here for many years and then he went to California, fortunately for us, he came back. <laughs> Thank you, David, for that. I always tell people I came back on purpose. <laughs> Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you, David, for, for this collection, but also for um, years of uh, support and work. I don't know if people know how special this community is. I feel like a lot of Minnesotans just kind of do the work and keep kicking. Um, but I came back here because of how special the community is here. And y'all are architects of that, so thank you. Um, my piece is called Dear Editor. So I'll just read that because that does all contextualization. But there's one thing that I, I do want to amplify about that part, which is you know, how we describe Derek Chauvin murdering George Floyd. We oftentimes will use a passive construction. George Floyd was murdered. Or we'll say George Floyd's murder um, as if he owns it. And I think it's really important. And, it's, and, and I don't, this is, this is habit, right? It's habit. When I grew up in uh, Los Angeles, after April 29th, 1992, which I've learned is also called Korean Sahigu. Um, but that was the day that 
um, uh, the verdicts came out around the four police officers uh, who beat Rodney King. And people always called it the King verdict or the King trial, as if he was the one who was on trial. And in a way he was. Scant days after Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd, I received an email from an editor of an online magazine. The email was a request to respond to the murder, calling on roughly my expertise in anti-blackness, my stature and my proximity on the ground, an unfortunate choice of words in the Twin Cities. Instead of producing an exclusive comment, I posted a version of this statement on my Facebook account on June 5th, 2020. It was late in the morning, almost noon. I had made very few revisions. Dear editor, I thank you for this invitation. Funny, I composed a poem about the historic Watts uprisings on Sunday, May 24th, before the NPD murder George Floyd. There's a part of me that wants to simply send you all of what I've already written, not as some authority, but to point out simply that this is a changing saying, that I and many others are always thinking about the conditions under which George Floyd and so many, many others are subject. The combination of these as features, not bugs in systemic modes of violence that are part of the purview of policing. As my wife and I explained to our 10-year-olds who learned explicitly about a then contemporaneous application of this constant historic killing when St. Anthony police officer Geronimo Yanez murdered Philando Castillo. It isn't that law enforcement is simply disinterested in protecting Black people, but the U.S. culture law dictates that our very presence is the thing they are meant to protect against. That white comfort has come to define itself as dependent on methodological control of everyone that deemed other is true. Separate colonialism, slavery, racism, forced displacement within the country, deportation, xenophobia, lynching, segregation, official exclusionary acts, internment, redlining, underemployment, food deserts, compromised healthcare access, the prison industry, genocidal wet works, and on and on and on and on. In this, Black people have the horrifying underprivilege of being mass mediatization's most consistent public base of a comfort control equation involving law enforcement and murder. And as such, we, along with Everyone else see black people murdered and assaulted by police and parapolice vigilantes again and again across the country's news cycle with a sure shot frequency. That white supremacy put me in a position to make this a reasonable conversation to have with my then six-year-olds is a violence I will never forgive. I will go to work carrying it. I will share social space carrying it. I will form friendships carrying it. Yet I will not forgive it. But back to the invitation, I'm grappling with your request, because you see, I wonder, at what point does another piece triggered in response to the, to the changing state become a part of the control comfort ecosystem? This is complex, in that writing such things is not cathartic for me and I'd imagine many others. Many different kinds of people could read what I've written, including people who are on the short end of the control comfort stick. I wonder, and I wonder this honestly, when is writing about violence against black people not a prediction? By which I mean, this violence is always happening. So when I wrote the poem I mentioned above, was I reacting to Watts? Refracted through the historical pattern of changing same? Was I acting in anticipation or response to the same thing happening again? Or was I, 
like the pastoral poet, not set on waiting for the event of fall in order to write about the redness in the arbor, but simply looking out my window in some October and watching the cycle continue. Understand, I am angry at her, not with the invitation. Precisely, I'm angry that a policeman murdered George Floyd. I'm angry that members of my community must risk their safety for more violence and a pandemic to demonstrate against this changing saying. But for this letter, dear editor, I am angry that despite all I've written alongside contemporaries who have written even better, add into a tradition we carry on because it is the cycle in which our ancestors fell, suddenly read to the ground, and those who could wrote about it also better than I. That what seems to be the case is that maybe if we try again, maybe we write it more clearly and passionately, but not too passionately, or perhaps more passionately, or with more nuance, or perhaps with unequivocal statements, or more musically, maybe with greater eloquence. No, 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 plain speech. That maybe if we do that just right, do it new and do it now, with speed and urgency, for those moments they are paying attention, white people will finally realize that they are responsible for changing themselves. And via their massive, more sacrosanct voting power, disproportionately large economic resources, gross overrepresentation in positions of power, and most importantly, prime access to their own psyches for speedily and urgently dismantling the systems that exist for them and their privilege. And yes, class is critical to this, but more fluid than perceived race. Please don't check your credit rating before they shoot, club, rough ride, or strangle your life away because you see, they already know what they think you're worth. So I don't know what to write about this other than a police officer named Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd. Chauvin apparently had never done anything so unbecoming of an officer as to be permanently relieved of duty prior, who because several other police officers were present as he murdered George Floyd over the course of about nine minutes, apparently didn't seem to be doing anything unbecoming of an officer Monday, May 25th, either. I will write that Black people are being asked to be patient again and show faith that maybe this time will be the one that really makes a difference, even as the same old narrative about property damage roll out from the owners of stolen land. I will write that again. My children are terrified because this is terrorism. I will write that the president's vile white supremacy doesn't let the brakes off white supremacy at large or to, so, or to suggest so would require the ridiculous fancy that the train was built with any thought that it should ever have to stop. I will write that if Derek Chauvin, George Floyd's murderer, is acquitted, the jury has agreed that $20 is the price of a black guy. I will write the police will murder other black people. Some will be named Brianna, and some will be named Tony. Some will be children. Some will be elders. It will fall across the spectrum of gender identities. Many will be poor, and almost all will be poorer than their white counterparts. The police will do this on and off camera. They will do it on the street and in the victim's homes, in parks and parking lots. They will do it, editor, and they will do it for white people, whether white people want to claim to claim to want it done or not. I would like to invite more white people to do something material about not wanting it. I would like to invite more white people to critically engage their sabotaging of our efforts through thoughtless opportunistic acts of catharsis and self-serving gaslighting. I would like to invite more white people to stop preferring that we keep producing new work when it's they who have work to do. Isn't that desire the very condition that sailed many black 
people here. Thank you, Douglas. So our next reader is Melissa Olson. She is an indigenous person of mixed Anishinaabe and Euro-American heritage, a tribal citizen of the Beach Lake Band of Ojibwe. For several years, Melissa, Melissa has worked as a writer and producer of independent public media, serving as the co-managing editor of the Viniculture Program at KFAI Fresh Air Community Radio in Minneapolis. Thanks so much, Carolyn, for the introduction. Um, and thank you so much for being such a great friend and a huge support. And thank you, David, for that moment, which I remember you kind of throwing up your hands on a Zoom call. You should just write and then keep, keep writing. <laughs> and if it were not for that, which also stuck in my head, I don't think I would be standing here tonight in such great company. Thanks to Clea and thanks to Doug for that amazing, amazing piece. Um, I want to give a few details about this, this piece before I begin. What you should know is that um, at this moment, I have been working on a project with Nikizi Communications, which is a native uh, nonprofit here in Minneapolis for about six months. Nikizi's uh, archive had been stored in boxes in this space at 3017 27th Avenue um, for for many years and it traveled with the organization for as many years as it's been around. It's been around for about 45 years. It was important to me um, to begin the project in November of 2019. Um, and I didn't know um, much more about it, didn't know much more um, than what was written on the tape covers, only that I recognized the names of so many people that I admired, that I knew, you know, from, from either school or from from, from our community here in Minneapolis. And for that reason, wanted to, to preserve them. The next thing you should know is that I live in Northeast Minneapolis and I live about 10 minutes away from where Megazine's building was, which is to say, it was also about 10 minutes from the third precinct. The tapes are in Megazine's building. Um, the third precinct has been uh, set on fire the night before. And um, I'm waking up uh, the next morning, and I can't sort of do anything except think about what state the building's in. We jumped into John's van and drove from our home in Northeast Minneapolis. As we get closer to the building, the chaos was palpable. The air was thick with smoke, and I remember that it smelled like oil paint. We parked five blocks away and walked to Nigazi as fast as we could. When we got there, we saw minor tagging on the building on the building's south-facing wall. Thankfully, it was otherwise untouched by fire, a fact we marveled at as we walked past the smashing, smashed in window of Gandhi Mahal, the restaurant next door. People everywhere walked slowly in twos and threes to survey the damage, some snapping photos of the property damage, buck 12 in ragged handwriting, and brownies zipped around on their bikes, observing people wandering around in shock and disbelief. It felt like a kind of root shock because nothing in the neighborhood resembled the orderly commercial corridor that had been just the day before. Debris was strewn everywhere we looked and what was left of burned out buildings was covered in soot. The streets were wet, not from water, from fire hose trucks, but from spray from the broken windows where sprinkler systems had been set off. 
We stood for a few minutes at the corner directly across from the police station and watched a man standing on the other corner yelling into a bullhorn pointed at the charred third precinct. Am I a man? Am I a man? We walked back to the van and slowly cut through alleys and side streets to find a way through the crowd that was beginning to reassemble. Once inside the van, John leaned against the door, lowered his shoulders and set his chin. Then he looked over at me and said, the building's not going to survive the night. If you're going to get the tapes out, you need to do it now. Thankfully, it was only 10 o'clock in the morning, so we knew we had time. When we got home, I called Nishi Kwe and made plans to move the archive. Next, I called KFAI and was given permission to store the boxes in an empty studio where they could remain through the night. John and I returned to Mikazi an hour later with the boxes. Undeterred by detours and traffic barriers, we drove up the alley behind Mikazi and parked at the back door. With the help of staff members and teams from the first person youth production program, we were able to quickly pack up tapes and stack the boxes into the van. Then we took off and made our way the 20-some blocks to KFAI. One of the teens came with us and helped us haul boxes up to the third floor to the studio that we were giving Yusuf for the night. The young man was unusually quiet. Later, I learned that his brother had been killed by police a year before. By the time we finished moving the boxes to KFAI, the adrenaline had started to wear off and we were all hungry. We bought lunch at the sub shop on the block from KFAI and drove another block over to the Oxford University campus. We found a picnic table and sat down to eat. While we were eating, John looked up and pointed to a bald eagle that was passing overhead, having flown from the direction of the river. I have never considered myself an especially spiritual person, but seeing the bald eagle at that moment, the bird for whom Mickey named itself, left the three of us feeling reassured that we had accomplished our work that day. Just as John predicted, Mugazi's building caught fire that night as embers from fires on either side of the building blew onto the roof. The executive director, Kelly Drummond, her husband, Sam, and their daughter stayed in the building as long as they could. They called 911, but fire trucks never came. Soon they were told to evacuate. The next morning, I returned to the radio station to check on the boxes and to make sure the room wasn't too hot or too humid. The sun was shining directly from the window, so I covered the windows with newspaper to avoid potential damage. When I learned from the station staff that volunteers were forming a neighborhood group to keep watch from the roof to guard the building throughout the coming night, I decided to move the archive a second time, this time to my house in Northeast Minneapolis. We moved the boxes again later that afternoon, and for the next five weeks, those 33 boxes of McGizzy's archive took up 20 square feet in our small house between the living room window and the desk. It gave everyone at McGizzy peace of mind. Boxes had traveled with the organization each time it had moved in its 40-year history. Some of those years, the boxes must have been stored in basement cellars. They were caked in dust and smelled of decay. I thought of the stories held on those reels and of the journalists whose many hundreds of hours are recorded there. And I thought of community members, many of whom I'd known as a younger person whose voices are preserved there. So as the weeks rolled on, I started to think of the tapes like an auntie or an uncle who had come for a long visit. Minnesota's stay-at-home orders and continued curfews meant that I rarely ventured outside 
home had become a place of refuge from the pandemic, but the boxes stacked between my desk and the window remained a physical reminder of the violence that took George, George Floyd's life and the violence of the fires that had destroyed parts of the city. A librarian from Augsburg University reached out immediately following the loss of Nicosi's building and asked what he could do to help. Appreciative of this offer, we decided to move the archive to Augsburg's library. It took me several weeks, but eventually I was able to create a basic inventory. I reboxed all the tapes and drove them over to Augsburg's library. The precautions in place for the pandemic meant there was an empty classroom where they could be stored. The Mamadi lecture that had been set to air on Thursday, May 28th, was understandably pushed back and did eventually air the week of June on NPR. I listened again and again, and each time I hear it a little differently. There is Mamadi in his booming voice, quoting his fellow writer, Isaac Dinesen, reminding us all sorrows can be borne out if you put them into a story. I'm fond of telling stories. Let me tell you a story. I think you're getting a sense of how powerful this anthology is. And, you know, I, I feel like we should begin for writers. We have a great reading from the anthology. So um, just amazing stuff. Uh, I'm going to introduce Saeed Shaheed, uh, who's a Somali writer who calls Minneapolis his home now. He's working on his MFA degree at the University of Minnesota and his debut book, Are You Cybered Now? His debut book has been called An Experimental Memoir and a Deeply Personal Self-Interrogation that Blurs Genre and Form to Examine How Intersections Between Culture, Race, Class, Gender, and Nationality Shape One's Identity. And this is what Doug Kearney says about the book. You gotta find reflections of yourself however you can to survive this country, writes Saeed Shaheed in this innovative Afrofuturist memoir. Are you bored now ciphers with trauma through a poetics of refusal via hard and beautiful language? Finding vigor in Islam and mirrors in Star Trek, Voyager, Shaheed shifts achingly between memory and improvisation. This is a serious debut. Um, and I, I think the fact that Said is getting his MFA from uh, University of Minnesota tells us something I wanna ask him later about it. And the fact that Cow uh, and Doug are now teaching marks a new shift, I think, toward, toward that, that program. And I, I've asked uh, Said to just sort of talk about, uh, you know, he talked in his writing, he talks about being black, Muslim, Somali, uh, and he's recently been diagnosed with autism. And as I mentioned in, in intro, his book has been described as a, a work which integrates in trying to interweave and understand his various different identities. So I wonder if you could just talk about the ways your this book and your identities have sort of interwoven with your, your writing. I was actually just going to do some poetry. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we can talk about that later. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is a, you know, so part of being autistic means being really sensitive to everything. Being alive in this world comes with no shortage of trauma, no matter what your background is. Um, and so this anthology, I feel, is absolutely critical and necessary um, reading for everybody. But I, but I also recognize that it's it deals with very traumatic things. 
And um, the essay that I wrote initially in the piece is extremely traumatic. So I did not want to read that because I was also trying to have two weeks of uh, pain. So I'm going to just read some poetry instead, dance around the trauma, which is something I do in the book. This first one is called Until You Learn the Meaning of Death or Love. A tire of gatekeepers standing at the gates of hell's past as if hell, hell is some place to desire entry to. Who am I? Nine five, motherfucker. Ready to live, motherfucker. Transatlantic railroad routes, dig supreme omelet and fromage flows. From the nostrils of high hopes comes low pie, brought to you by the people who killed you and I. 7 a.m. breath reeking of 3 a.m. double shots, eyes leaking blood red like grapefruit cantaloupe. Hold your head up high, turn your lights down low. My next writing project will be the one to save you. Until you learn to call writing what it is, whimsical notions of the mind do not. <clears throat> When I reach flow state, I stop worrying about anything I don't want to be. When I reach flow state, I stop thinking how allistics think. This is my autistic life, but can you feel me though? I paid the Paul bearer sixpence and he was none the richer. I rich Paul my way into being a Richard Porter. I Richard Millie my plane jet into the Lambo ghosted me. Shouts to Freddie Gibbs manager Lambo for ghosting me. Until you see the ways this world keeps us separate. Until you see the structure of the song before it's set in stone. Don't fear the end because the end end is near. The end of fear is the end of here. The end of not is the big I need. There can only be one way out of life is death. If you live the right life, we'll call you back. Sing sweet melodies as you drift away. Sing rapturous tunes as the angels descend. Your family in the corners of eyes now wave. Your answers is beckoning, smiling warmly, saying, we'll guide you. We'll get you there. Where you are headed, there is no fear, only warmth, glowing radiance, only peace, no strive, no suffrage, until your life is complete, do not be alarmed at the ways your TV phases, in and out of tune with the universe, melting like the stuff they put in thermometers to measure heat with, until the heat melts it, until all that's left is silver, fluid, poisonous, in your hand, snow drifts. Snowdrifts etched inside eyelids, Kilimanjaro, how do I know? Killing them softly with our songs, parting lips, even more softly. Two people meant for each other must first overcome years of resistances. All the ways they were taught, love's unreachable. That love costs too much, that it is unworthwhile of time. Before they can have each other in life or death, they must first overcome. Until you learn the meaning of life, your life will be lived incomplete. Until you die, you won't know what it will have meant to be loved. Until the last snows melt in the eyes of glass statues, nothing you say will mean much of anything, really. Um, this second piece and final piece um, has two names. I wrote this for a very special friend who's watching. Shouts to my friend. Um, first title is Where the Hose At. Second title is a poem in the voice of my autistic Twitter friend. This is a poem in the voice of my autistic Twitter friend. If she were here, she'd have written the thing. But I'm here by proxy. I'll write for her, a writer borrowing, borrowed hands to write this poetry with. If a writer is separated from their craft, the bones begin to shift and shudder until kaleidoscopic visions of heaven meeting earth shroud their peripheral vision. Lately, my days run into my nights, so my nights keep me up at night. My fights keep me booking new shows to perform this poetry for. On my tour writer, please, no questions. I need three dozen soft bagels, Tom's brand, one pound of honey, three shots of whiskey, don't pour them though, cause I don't drink, pour them down the kitchen sink. Poet used to drink more than a kitchen sink. Now I write poems in the voices of people I've never met, but who feel closer than people I've known my whole life. What's the price of a life these days? What does it mean to slow down and play the record and back time? This is not a poem. 
This is a grocery list of things I've forgotten to write down, so I didn't forget to write them down. So I forgot the thought of forgotten things before they were forgotten. Never fretted. I'm autistic, but you should jump off my cocoa stick. Jump around where my party people at. Most deaf, Yassine Bey gave me an education in just one of his bars, more potent than 12 years of public schooling. The boondocks taught me more about this country than this country has. I sit in the four panel rooms of psych wards past. I walk down La Brea Ave, down Slauson, down Shaksuk. I walk on walls and fences on the edge of hat combs I never use. I comb my hair if I had any hair left to comb. So I shave. I wonder how I'll survive my first winter as a bald man or how I'll face the music when the tall man comes to take me home. Brother man, please bless me with that soft pack. I don't need the now. I don't need the loud. Brother man, help me overcome these addictions, the ones too secretive for me to even talk about, the ones that exist only in my mind, the people I've left behind and the friends of buried. Pour out an ounce of liquor if liquor was measured in ounces, if liquor was permissible for Muslim hands to handle. It's said that in heaven we'll all be able to drink, so on, so on earth we abstain from that shit. I know a lot of alcoholics, and they don't even drink. I know people dying alive who've never walked a cop's beat. I know propositions number 12, Minneapolis City Sample, City Council, repeal the police. I wear the number 12 on my hat. That doesn't represent police. It represents Seattle, where I'm from. Besides, pork is against my religion. I peel back the layers of onions in this city and there'll be enough black hands to do it. I peel back the layers of onions in this city and I wonder if there'll be enough black hands to do it because the white hands keep layering it on, thick stew it. And I should mention that none of this means anything. This poetry is meant to free us, but sometimes I feel like I'm freezing up, frozen down. Freddie Gibbs, help me get through this come down. Coming down off of what? Off of life institutionalized. And I can't tell if the prison cell or the academic hall have any difference. They both kill you, imprison you, make you want to die. This country has so many ways to make you want to die. So my greatest act of resistance, and for my next trick, I'll need a member from the audience, is to exist, to survive the game. Jesus said, survive the game, homie. Survive is our greatest form of hope. I still pray to get my soul right. I'm in Home Depot right now. Where the hoes at? <laughs> Thank you, guys. Um, so now we're just going to gather the writers up front here and just have a minor Q&A with <laughs> me and David and the writers. And then um, questions from the audience. I'll ask the first one for Kalkali and Yang. All right. Your essay centers around growing up on the east side of St. Paul in a racially diverse community and about some of the things that happened with your siblings especially while your parents were at work. There are some harrowing moments in the piece, like the man attempting to break into your home but being stopped by your next door neighbor, another man trying to break in through the front door, and the woman whose language was so abusive to you and your siblings in the supermarket parking lot. In each of these incidents, you and your sister show phenomenal courage. Can you say a little bit about where you think that amazing courage came from? Thank you for that lovely question. It's lovely because I get to contemplate the sources of strength in my life, which is not generally what happens at readings, Carolyn, so thank you. <laughs> you know, my grandpa died when my, when my father was just two years old. It was a war, the secret war in Laos. A third of them all had been massacred, and then another third was slaughtered in the genocide of its aftermath. My grandma taught seven little boys how to become men, and she raised two phenomenal women. She was the matriarch of our family. And we saw her in conditions that a lot of, if she could have helped it, if any grandmother would have helped it, they wouldn't have chosen. 
you know, but my grandma, Carolyn, all of our lives with her, she carried all of these keys. There was no lock in our lives at all. In the refugee camps and even here in America, she never had a room of her own. You know, she moved from the house of one child to the next, but she carried all of these keys. And I once asked her, I once said, Grandma, where would you, why? Why did you carry all these keys? And she said, because there's still so much more of life to unlock. Oh. And I, I think about my grandmother all the time, you know? There is so much more of life to unlock. By the time I came along, she was an old woman down to her last single tooth. You know, the last one that she refused to take out because it would be the last, if we took it out by force, it'd be the last gift, the last gift that we take from her mom, the thing standing from her mom and dad. I think about her, Carolyn, and I'm like, people don't know about her hands, those incredible, beautiful hands are still holding me up. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm able to sit so straight because the back of this chair is so far back. My legs are so short. <laughs> yes. Certainly there's other forces that work here, people. <laughs> Douglas. There's a whole controversy now about critical race theory, which people don't actually understand what it is. But one of the aspects of critical race theory is, it, it, which aligns with a school of theory called Afro-pessimism, is that just is American racism a permanent feature of America? And in your piece, Doug, you write about how inevitable in stopping police, unstopping police violence and anti-black animus has been historically continuous in the present and will continue in the future. You ask what's the proper necessary response to this violence and animus is writing an adequate or necessary response. You also state that this violence occurs on behalf of and for white people, even white people who do not endorse this violence. Can you make a specific address to white people and what you think they should do? So I'm asking, can you speak a little more on both sides of this, both the tasks of writers facing something as horrible as uh, Derek Chauvin murdering George Floyd and your address to white people. Thank you, David. So a part of the question is, uh, is writing an adequate response? Not by itself. Um, I think many artists I know, this is something I said before, many artists I know believe that the world is best served by interdependence. And yet many of us are tempted to assume that our individual piece should do the work. Like all of a sudden we're like, you know, entrepreneurs trying to hit upon like a great new product will solve all the problems by itself. So when I think, when I say I don't know if writing is adequate, that is not to put down writing. It is to put down the idea that one person doing one thing, no matter how much tradition they've been informed by, is going to be enough. We can't wait for that one person to do it for us. We all have to do it. And so on that, on that level, is writing adequate? No. Is writing important? Yes. As part of a network of activities, part of a network of ways that people connect to each other, as part of a network of making plain or making more complex that which we that some of us would like to forget, uh, making present things that have happened that are happening that may very well happen again if they help us to see more clearly who we are in this. There's a, there's a thing that happens whenever, and you know, it's usually, it's usually whenever a bunch of white people do something terrible. There's just a, this is not who we are. This is not who we are. I'm like, since when? I'm like, since when? This 
is the equivalent of watching somebody assemble and then activate a gaslight before your very eyes. And you can go, and yeah, I've done it. But we have to remind ourselves because sometimes seeing it on the street isn't enough. Sometimes people need it in a book or presented in a bookstore. What do I think white people should do? <laughs> and I laugh at that because there's a book I read, um, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together? Beverly Tatum, thank you, Dr. Beverly Tatum. Thank God I remembered at least the last name. Makes me sound like a new Dr. Tatum. <laughs> um, but she said that privilege works like this. And privilege, no adjective before it, just privilege. So imagine you're on, uh, you're at the airport, and there's one of those people. And there are people who embrace their privilege. They get on that people mover. They're like, they're walking with it. They're suddenly bionic. You've seen that people are late for a flight. They're going faster, better, stronger. Then there are those who resist their privilege. So they actually are on the, tr the treadmill. You can't not be on the treadmill. If, you, if you've got privilege, you're on the treadmill. And those people turn around and walk against the treadmill. It's harder than walking forward. But with enough effort, you could do it. People who don't think much about their privilege either way, stand. They don't get there as fast as the people who are like, give me minds, but they sure as hell do get there. Whatever you look at and see as being a part of your treadmill, if you really don't want it, it's gonna be harder than getting it. That's how it's designed is designed so you don't have to think about it. Like that's it, that's, that's you know those magic eye things, it'd be like a pattern of things, you looked at it, you see the way, you've never seen the fucking way. But here, here's a, here's a clue, turn to the back of the book. You don't have to ask for it. You just have to not do anything about it. So do something about it. If you feel that you don't want this, if it bothers you, if it disturbs you, then you actually have to do something against it. And I would say that same thing as a straight cisgender dude. If I am not, if, I, if I'm pushing, if I'm, if I'm uncomfortable with heterosexism, I can't just be, oh, I just don't like the way that feels. You gotta do something about it. So that's what I'd say. Thank you, Doctor. Melissa, your essay is layered and stunning. You're wanting to do something while the unrest was going on following George Floyd's murder, yet because you're taking care of your elderly mother, you're not comfortable joining the protests. But you're deeply concerned about rescuing the tapes that held Legacy Communications 15 plus years of radio programming that you were digitizing. If you weren't able to retrieve those tapes, Legacy's first person radio program would have been lost forever. Through your wonderful partner, John, he's back there. Hey, John. <laughs> through his intuition and through teamwork with you and the staff at Magazine, wow. You, you were able to, to rescue those tapes just hours before the building caught fire. And I remember that you had moments when you felt stuck while writing this heart-stopping yet heartwarming essay, but you made it through. You mentioned what David said to you during that Zoom call. <laughs> so can you say a little bit about your approach and your process for writing the essay? Sure. In the end, I think um, 
I bow to a feeling that for this particular project, because it is about Nigazee, because this story is about Nigazee, it should be more about that than it should be about myself. So where I started, and I think we're, you know, at the point that David threw his hands up, literally, um, <laughs> there was a lot of gesticulating, I remember that. Um, <laughs> I was um, like, you know, we go and get the boxes, the boxes are there at that moment, they're in my house, they're living, you know, they're blocking the window, so there's, you know, that and the smell, and it's, it's, it, it was intense, um, and so we can't really go out, um, and to, to stay in means to stay committed to, you know, living with sort of the boxes, the smell, the, um, how ragged they are, in a way, you know, they, they just survived, 35 years from being moved place to place, most of them in their original boxes and that kind of thing. I felt pretty comfortable writing about that and less about myself. I will say like, I, there were several attempts, I made several attempts thinking about writing about the pandemic. That was a little bit easier and it was probably equally the most difficult thing. I made a choice a couple of different times. I, I had the opportunity to go to New York for work at the start of the pandemic. And I love New York. Um, I love visiting New York. Um, it was a wonderful opportunity. And I, I remember the sinking feeling knowing that I would not go because if I went and I got sick, I, you know, I, I don't know who or what at that point, you know, comes to her aid, my mom's aid. So I, I stay home. And I was really glad that I did. Um, my colleague who was in New York at that time was sick with COVID. You know, they, have, they, they were both so kind and saying, good to follow your gut, you know. And I didn't, it wasn't about following my gut. It was more about my mom had suffered upper respiratory illness as a baby. And since then, there was always this, this sort of story in my family about the severity of, of how sick you can get, that it's life-threatening. That story, probably as much as anything, was the one that stuck in my head. You know, my mom, she's, she's a tough woman. She had pneumonia twice as a baby. She went through the whole thing. She had pertussis. I mean, the, the same story is also the story of, of incredible resilience, right? How you get through that is also a story of resilience. So staying home, I knew that was the right thing to do. And that essay is a little bit tougher. It, it takes a little bit more vulnerability to write that. And this is certainly not easy, but there are there are sort of more layers to ex excavate there than, than I think I had the headspace to at the time. So in your writing, you address the fact that your Black and Muslim Somali identities uh, are important to you and you've been diagnosed with autism. Your book, Are You Cybered Now, has been described as a deeply personal self-interrogation the blurs genre informed to examine how intersections between culture, race, class, gender, and nationality shape one's identity. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the intersections of your identity in your writing and your mixing of forms, you know. And I also wonder, did you know Doug's work before you came to the MFA program? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I don't think so. But, but I, I, I'm just, you, you, you mentioned to me how important Douglas has been. So. Yeah, it, it, while I was thinking, he was like, be honest. Like, huh. uh, <laughs> um, I, honestly, no, but I did meet Doug at a, uh, uh, they got this like MFA um, pre-event, like when people are deciding after they're accepted if they're going to actually come or not 
and you get to meet the faculty and stuff. You know, sat down with them. It was at the uh, the Weissman, right? The the art gallery, and we got to talk for a while. And I was just like, I was like, listen, man, uh, I have this uh, desire to always run from anything that I'm doing. Um, and I know that this is going to be a hard road. So I was basically like, can I count on you to like, you know, in a way hold me accountable, but also like to serve as an anchor to hold me down and to like. To, to show me that, that that I deserve to be here, not just in a writing program, but on this earth. And he was like, and this is something I just meant right then. There's another thing about being autistic, that doesn't mean like we prefer death over small talk. I would rather tell you my life story as a stranger than ask you what time of day it is or ask you about the weather. Um, so I told him that and he was like, of course, bro, I got you. And I'm like, all right, that's all I need. One black faculty member to hold me down. <laughs> and he has indeed held me down. I wrote a thing, but I don't know if I should read it or not. It might give me trouble. I don't know if it's good trouble. It might be just trouble. I'm trying to graduate. Um, <laughs> well, all right. So I only just found out I'm autistic about four months ago. Um, I'm still processing a lot of it, but I'm also looking back at my last two years in this MFA program and seeing why I've had so many traumatic moments. Um, not just because I'm black and Muslim in a university that hasn't been kind to either one of those identities. But because of the autism, you see, I was masking in so many ways without realizing it. Um, and I was encouraged to, quote unquote, just push through and dwell on more and more traumatic moments in my writing for the consumption and often vicious critique of my peers. Um, I think I'll need years of therapy to unpack all this, but it's one of the reasons why I pivoted so quickly away from the kind of confessional trauma writing that's displayed in my essay, Diddy and Dreams, which is an anthology. Um, in fact, a need to protect myself is brought about my book, Are You Borg Now? It's spelled B-O-R-G, Borg, as in, the, I'm a nerd, Star Trek. Yeah. Um, the format I came up with, which is the backbone of the book, is one that allowed me to tiptoe around trauma without ever confronting it or divulging anything I wasn't ready to share with anyone. Um, the back and forth conversation between my inner child and my adult self, which is the basic premise of the book, that's what allowed me to gauge my body's response to trauma in real time as I wrote about what I was feeling, both in the present, under pressure in an MFA program, uh, while also remembering similar traumas from my past. I wrote that book as a means of survival, otherwise I would have self-imploded and dropped out. Um, and that process of writing it led me to seek new ways of writing, which is when I started focusing so heavily on a return to my poetic roots. So now, nowadays, I'm trying to write into a more joyous and hopeful future. Um, one where I can write about the tall grass like white girls do and get paid for it. Um, sunshine. And uh, so I could also write about autism, soft sweaters and even softer bagels because that is a lot more enjoyable and worthwhile to me than performing my pain for cheap applause from people who may never understand me. Good for you and you're so brave. Those things will not heal my pain. Thank you, Sarah. everybody. Um, we're running later than we anticipated, but I think we have time for maybe one or two questions. I do have one audience question. Writing is often seen as an isolated, introverted art form, but each of you are also beautiful performers. How are you able to make the shift from writing to presenting your work? Wow. Uh, besides uh, sort of personal interest in uh, performance um, and taking classes and things like that, I am aware that there is a there's a heightened level of expectation performance um, for uh, some folks. I don't think like black people have the exclusive 
have the exclusive access to that. Um, but one of the things that people oftentimes talk about, um, they talk about the history or ideas of sociology around whiteness, um, is you know, people talk about W.B. Du Bois, double consciousness. It's always like the African and the American are in this dead wrestling sort of thing. But the thing that I think people don't talk about as much is the idea that oftentimes, um, it, this is Du Bois formulation, that um, black, black folks have to be aware of how they're being seen, even at the same time that they're being themselves. So like, I don't see myself in that formulation. I don't see myself without thinking about how everybody in this room is looking at me, how you're seeing me, which means that I always have like a little cinematographer Right? But the cinematographer is generally not making me have these awesome, like slow motion John Woo types of things. No, no, no. It's oftentimes what's more like a surveillance camera or, or something like that, like, you know, like, you know, closed circuit TV. So, like, if you lean into that, then it's sort of like every minute of your life, you're perfecting this crap. I am in this fabulous, fabulous, fabulous repertory theater that is called this American culture. And I, and I didn't have to pay like actual money other things but pay actual money to get in it and like the lessons are coming and you're all here this community teaching community education so when i think about performance i take the actual things that i have researched and studied in many kinds of theater, theatrical programs and all that kind of stuff um experience i have singing all these kinds of things uh, my original singing i was great i was raised lutheran elca lutheran right right so this is this is the backup for me right black lutherans so my my my, my singing was i learned that in the past with a boys choir so when i say my singing don't assume that i was at the kachi right i learned how to sing ave maria that's what i'm so i guess i'm saying that all of those things combined work to doing this thing and i don't talk for a long time but y'all gave me the mic it's your fault um <laughs> I don't know what's gonna happen when I pick up the page of whatever I'm about to read. It's whatever I feel is necessary in that moment. Like Saeed making that decision about what he was going to read and whether he was gonna say it, that is a calculus. One thing I oftentimes do is I just do what I think I'm supposed to do in that moment because if I think too much about it, I probably won't. Uh, oh, can I just say one last thing? Sorry. Um, I might be misremembering. Dr. Beverly Tatum might have said specifically white privilege, but I always think about it as privilege. So autism, fun fact, difficulties with memory. Another fun fact, sensitivity, uh, sensitivity to light and noise, which is why I'm wearing the sunglasses and not trying to be that cool guy, and why I have the AirPods in to reduce uh, the amount of overstimulation that I face at the event so that I can have a good night tonight. Uh, so I was a poet a long time ago. Um, and performance is kind of in my roots. Well, even before that, like, it's also in my blood. It's, uh, you know, Somalia is known as the nation of poets or whatever. And so we have a rich oral poetic tradition. Um, several of my grandfathers were well-known poets back in the day. This is something I only found out like much later in life. In fact, when I was trying to be a spoken word poet, my parents were like trying to dissuade me from it. I ran to some random distant uncle and he was like, oh, you do a poetry now. Oh yeah, you know, several, several hundred thousand, several hundred people have your grandfather's poetry memorized. And I was like, why, why, why the fuck is my family hiding this from me to dissuade me from pursuing poetry? You know, like, um, so I used to do spoken word. Like, it was my life. I even dropped out of college to do it full time. Um, true story. And uh, so performance is kind of something I'm used to doing. Um, 
I took a long break away from it. But also, in a lot of ways, like being on stage is one of the most freeing things for me, as painful as it is of a process to prepare for and the entire day of anxiety leading up to it and afterwards and all that crazy stuff. Like actually allowing myself to fully free myself without judgment or expectation. Like when I was on stage, I was doing something that's called stimming, which is something that um, I recently found out. Even children do, everybody does, but it's uh, the body's way of like getting rid of excess energy. And I was like tapping on the uh, on the stage rhythmically. Um, it helped me keep the beat to that I was like spitting to, but it also helped me vent off excess energy. Um, and I saw this Twitter thing. It said, uh, "Children, all children do this, like up until like age two, but society beats it out of them because it tells them that it's weird. They don't say it with so many words, but they society tells us this with uh, with body language, and so." We all need to do it to some extent, but autistic people especially need to do it. Otherwise, we get overloaded and have a meltdown and a shutdown, and we can't do anything for several days. It's not a good time. Um, break up with people. It's not a good time. And so, like, yeah, being on stage, like, I can do whatever my body naturally does, and people are like, wow, what an amazing performance. No, need, no I'm just being myself, you know? Yeah, yeah. I was gonna give the quick answer, which is this is exactly why I choose radio. Mm. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's and that is a that is about uh, seventy percent of it. But I have to add because Doug mentioned Ave Maria. Um, I would be remiss if I did not say I owe it um, to my mom to be able to stand up in front of anybody and do anything. I remember the moment it sort of overtook me, and that was uh, my mom who sings as a singer, a professional singer, you know, national anthems, weddings, um, was practicing Ave Maria. Mm -hmm. um, in the bathroom, I was 13, and she had, to, she had to sing a cappella for a Catholic wedding. My mom is, you know, she's five foot two, but she's got this huge, beautiful voice. And she would sing it a cappella over and over and over, and this went on for a couple months. She's preparing for this wedding. Um, and, at the time, I, you know, I didn't really, you know, understand. And then I would just, you know, I would find myself singing it later and it just made me that much more comfortable. And later when I saw her actually perform it, um, you know, I realized that it just took work. Mm -hmm. um, we've just been notified that the story's about to close. So um, when's the last time I shut something down? <laughs> well, thank you, the last word. Um, I, I want to say this. I grew up as a selective mute in English. I have no problem speaking while growing up. But in English, I didn't talk. The first public talk I did, the first time I spoke to be heard was at the book launch of The Late Homecomer in 2008, April 10th, 2008. I got up and I couldn't do it, got up and I couldn't do it. Finally, my dad walks around the back of the room and he's wearing his nicest jacket, which he has no occasion to wear. I bought it with fellowship dollars my last semester at Columbia. The Brooks brother jacket that fit him real well. He walks right off and he says to me, because my hands are shaking so bad, my dad puts out his hand and I put mine on top of his. I have the soft hands of a writer. My father has spent his life in America as a machinist. His hands are so hard, it hurts when he brushes his hands in the long gesture of love. But he puts out his hand, I put mine on top, and my dad says to me, If Hmong tears can reincarnate, we will rain the world with our sorrow, but they cannot. They can only green the mountains of Kumbia. If you speak, if the winds of humanity blow, then maybe our lives are not lost.
And I always thought one day that whenever I spoke, it would come from this hard place inside of me, this place of strength. I didn't know that it would come from the tenderest part of me, the part that had been watered by my tears all through the years, the softest fluttering part of me. So when I talk, you can't see the tears fall, but you hear them in my voice. When I talk, I have the strength again, always of my grandmother, of the two who died so I could be here, guiding me. Have to live a life that is bigger than my own. Have to do work that is worthy of their falling so that I might stand. And I believe that each and every single one of us were the dream of a future, somebody's happy ending. Somewhere in time, we were their only dream, and here we are living that dream. I want to be worthy of that. Then there's a simple fact. Everybody has an expectation of what they will hear when they see somebody like me. I never write my speeches down because I want the freedom to say what I think and what I feel about the world I'm in. A lot of people who hear me would never pick up my books. And, not, and a lot of people who read me would never be able to hear me talk. It's a different arm. It is what allows me to hold. If writing is the leg, then, then speaking is my arms. And together we make our way into the world. For coming, um, there are books for sale, and there's also some refreshments in the back, but I guess we kind of have to move it. Um, anyway, thank you, everybody. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for hosting us. Please buy books. Thank you, David. Thank you.